You're listening to audio from Stapleton Baptist Church. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit stapletonbaptistchurch.org. We pray this message blesses you. John chapter 16. John chapter 16, and we'll be picking up in verse 16 this morning. So John 16, 16. If you haven't been with us in a while, or maybe if this is your first time visiting with us, we're currently studying the Gospel of John. In fact, this is week 33 of the study, so if you're new, you have a little catching up to do, Um, and if you have about uh, 12 hours, you can listen to all the podcasts and catch up with us. Uh, But if you wanted a summary, uh, just a summary of the purpose of John's gospel, you could look at John 20, 31, where John himself tells us this, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So everything that John records in his gospel, everything that we have studied over the last 33 weeks is put there for the sole purpose of giving evidence that Jesus is who he says he is, the Son of God. And John's hope is that by seeing that evidence, people would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and in that find life in his name. And chapter after chapter, we've seen Jesus saying things and doing things that he could only do if he was God. His actions have earned him the admiration of of the masses, of thousands of people have followed him, but he's also earned the hate of the religious leaders. But now, here where we are at in chapter 16, we've come to the eve of his arrest and crucifixion. He's preparing his small band of disciples for what is to come. And this morning, we're going to read the final words of Jesus to his disciples before his crucifixion as recorded in John's gospel. This will be followed by a prayer of Jesus, his high priestly prayer concerning the disciples. But what we have here today is the last words directed to them. He's been talking a whole lot with them about leaving and dying And the result of his talk is that his disciples are grieved. We saw last week in verse 6, it told us that the disciples' hearts were filled with sorrow. They were filled with it, as if there's, there's nothing, no room left in their hearts for anything except for this grief and sorrow. It's overwhelmed them. But we'll see in today's passage that Jesus doesn't leave them there in their sorrow. Jesus is the good shepherd. He cares for his sheep, not just spiritually, but emotionally and physically and mentally. And his desire isn't for these disciples to remain in their sorrow. They will experience intense loss over the next few days. It'll seem as if the last three years were a complete failure, but Jesus promises them two things on the other side of this pain. He promises them joy and peace. He promises them the two things that in their truest form can only be found in him. And interestingly enough, joy and peace are often paired together in the Bible. Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Peace and joy are are two different things, but at the same time they overlap, almost like interlocking circles. You can't have true peace without true joy, and you can't have true joy without true peace. But let's go ahead and begin reading in this passage today and and start by finding the basis, the foundation of our joy. So read with me beginning in John 16, 16. 
Jesus says this, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us a little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the father. So they are saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers her anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. And that day you'll ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. So I admit that this section is kind of wordy there. There's a lot of words going on, so let's sort through it and make some sense of it. Jesus has a pattern of saying things that are a bit vague and mysterious at first. And verse 16 is no exception. He says, a little while, and you'll see me no longer, and again a little while, and you'll see me. It sounds a little bit like a, a, a magic set. Uh, now you see me, now you don't. The disciples are flustered by this. They don't know what to think about what he's saying. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, I think it's helpful if we break it down into its two parts. First, what does he mean by, in a little while, you won't see me? The disciples have walked side by side with Jesus for three whole years. And by now, they're within just a few hours of losing him. By the end of the night, Judas will appear with a mob to the place where Jesus is at, and the soldiers will arrest him and take him away. There is a sense in that that they will no longer see him after that. But it's really fully realized at his death. After Jesus is crucified and killed, his mangled body will be placed in a tomb and a stone rolled over the entrance. They're, they will no longer see Jesus because their Messiah will be dead in a grave. And the result of his death and burial is found in verse 20. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. The world reveled at Jesus' death. The Jews cheered as Pilate handed Jesus over to them to be crucified. They celebrated his death. They thought it was a triumph, a victory for them. And certainly Satan thought the same thing, to see the Son of God murdered, hanging dead on the cross and then buried in the tomb. The disciples, on the other hand, would be pierced with sorrow and grief like they never imagined. All their hopes and dreams in a Messiah shattered. They'll no longer see him. But that's not the end of the story. Because the, the second half of verse 20 says, You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. How can that be true? How can such terrible pain and anguish be turned into joy? And it's because they will see him again. And Jesus gives them the perfect illustration to hold on to during this trial. Verse 21 when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. Obviously, I cannot relate to this. I have not felt that anguish and pain. But from observation, I know this illustration to be very true. Uh, I've been in that room on three separate occasions, and each seemed 
more intense than the last. It did not get easier, did it? I don't think so. For most women, it's not a pleasant experience. Um, in fact, you'd almost wonder, why would anyone willingly go through such an experience? But the motivation is in the result. It's what you know is on the other side. On the other side of that labor, you're holding in your hands your new baby, boy or girl, and everything that came before doesn't really matter so much anymore. And Jesus uses that picture to illustrate what's coming for the disciples. They'll go through several days of extreme pain and loss, and it will seem like everything's falling apart, but they need to hang on to the words of Jesus because there's something glorious on the other side of this pain. And in verse 22 says, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Their sorrow will be turned into joy because they will see Jesus again. And there's a major difference this time when they see him again. No one will take their joy from them. Now, why is that? Why will they now have joy that can't be taken from them? Because they have seen Jesus. You see, this new joy is rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The joy comes from knowing the risen Lord who has triumphed over the grave, and now he's been crowned King of kings and Lord of lords, and nothing can change that. And that's where true joy is found. It's true joy because it can never be taken, because Jesus will never be anything less than the risen King. And maybe you hear that and think, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't always feel joyful. So what's up with that? If it's a joy that can't be taken from you, why don't I always feel joyful? And there's really three possible reasons that you may find yourself lacking joy as a Christian. First, it may be that you're looking for joy in the wrong places. It's the way of all mankind to look for joy and satisfaction in things that we can see and things that we can touch, things that are tangible. We place our our joy in money. It's a great feeling when you check your bank account and the number you see makes you feel good. It makes you feel secure and comfortable. We place our joy in things like houses and cars or even extra things like boats and campers and four-wheelers. It, it feels good to see what we've earned, to see the things that we want, and to feel good about it. We place our joy in in accomplishments like reaching a certain position at our work or earning a certain degree or gaining access to a certain social circle. Or we even place our joy in relationships. We find all our joy in a spouse or a child or a best friend. And now here's the tricky part. It's tricky because none of those things that I mentioned are bad things. Those are actually good things. They're not, houses and cars aren't bad. It's not bad to have what you want. It's certainly not bad to have a spouse or to have friends or children. We would actually recognize all those things as great, gracious gifts of God. They should bring us joy and satisfaction as well. But if those things become our ultimate source of joy, then we have failed. Those things, those things that aren't ultimate, when we make them ultimate, we're setting ourselves up for failure. Those can't be our ultimate source of joy. Those things are great, but they're not permanent, and they can be taken from us in just a second. The year 2020 has made that abundantly clear that everything can change in a heartbeat. Things can change in an instant. Investments and stocks can crash overnight. 
Uh, people all across the West Coast right now are experiencing this as these wildfires rage and everything that they own is destroyed in and, and the matter of a night. Hurricanes that we know a little bit better around here work the same way. Everything you have can be taken from you in an instant. And even the people we care most about are just as fragile as things. Life is so precious but can be taken from us. And if you rooted your ultimate joy in something that can be taken away, then you're setting yourself up to fall. You're actually making that thing an idol. It, it isn't a coincidence that the first two commandments that God gives in the Ten Commandments, he says to the Israelites, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make any graven images. The first two things are about setting things up in our lives that are more important than God. And our natural tendency is to hope and trust and, and find our joy in something other than God. During the Reformation, um, Pastor John Calvin famously said that the human heart is a factory of idols. It's what we do. We try to find joy and pleasure and satisfaction in things besides God. And don't think that Satan has nothing to do with this. He is the great deceiver. He breathes out lies by nature. And in our 21st century world, with all of its modern comforts, Satan doesn't have to try to tempt us to do things that we all recognize as wrong, like things that are illegal or obviously terrible. All he has to do is convince us that something else is more important than God. And that's what he did in the very beginning in the garden. God gave Adam and Eve dominion and rule over everything. They had access to everything God gave them. But they lack, and they lacked nothing, but Satan deceived them into thinking that there was something else that they needed besides what God had given them. And when we make something else an idol and root our joy in it rather than God, we place ourselves on a slippery surface. If my joy and happiness is controlled by the digits of my bank account, then I've made it an idol. If my joy and satisfaction is controlled by what people at school think about me or what coworkers think about me, then I've made that social status my idol. If I sulk about and, and no one wants to be around me for a week after my football team loses, then maybe I've made that an idol of my joy. Now, I wasn't going to go there, but, but there it is. Just getting that out there. So you may be lacking joy because you're looking for it in the wrong places. And the second reason is you may be lacking joy because you aren't looking to Jesus. It's kind of the, the other side of the same coin. Jesus said that they would have a joy that couldn't be taken from them because they had seen him. If you're lacking joy, it may be because you aren't focusing on your Savior. This is so painfully obvious in my own life. I, with nearly 100% certainty, I can guarantee that if I'm consistently irritable, unhappy, and unpleasant to be around, it's probably because I haven't spent as much time in God's word or in prayer as I should. And I don't say I should as in just out of duty. I, I say I should as in the sense that my soul longs for it. My soul needs that time more than anything because my heart and mind need to daily be renewed by the power of Holy Scripture. And when my devotional consistency weakens, so does my joy. And if you're lacking joy, then look to Jesus. Open up his book. Read it, knowing that the Holy Spirit guides you in it. 
The disciples would see Jesus face to face. We see Jesus through his word and through the witness of the spirit within us, illuminating our hearts and minds. And the more you know Jesus, the more joyful you should be. And joy is noticeable. It's not something just deep down inside that doesn't ever show. If, if you truly love Jesus, then you shouldn't be a cranky person. If you truly love Jesus, then you shouldn't be irritable and unpleasant. Knowing Jesus leads to joy, and joy is something that other people can see in you. And related to that is prayer. There's a fascinating relationship between joy and prayer that's described here in the following verses. Verse 23 says, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. This is describing prayer right here. Anytime it's talking about asking things of God, that's basically prayer. There's something about prayer that will have changed for the disciples after the resurrection. From the first moment someone prayed in the course of history, it was always prayer to God, to the Father, in the name of God the Father. There, there really wasn't this understood idea of the Trinity yet for the Israelites. No devout Jewish person would have ever prayed to anyone or in any other name besides the one true God. But after the resurrection, Jesus says they'll pray to the Father, but they will pray in Jesus's name. And that's because Jesus has been given all power and authority and dominion by the Father. The Father has crowned him Lord of all and exalted him to the highest place. And prayer in the name of Jesus also means that it's prayer in accordance with the character and mission of Jesus. And through Jesus, we have the confidence that if we ask anything in the of the Father in the name of Jesus, he will grant it because he is the risen Lord. He's the one and only mediator between God and man. And the end of verse 24 says this, Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. That your joy may be full. There is, in a sense, a way that, that your joy won't be complete without prayer. Your joy will not be complete without prayer. So you may be lacking joy because you're lacking in prayer. And I believe most of us don't pray because we don't actually think we need to. We think prayer is something that we just add on to a meal or, or something that you pull out when things get really bad. Almost like a last resort. But Jesus says, your joy will be full, it will be complete when you ask things in my name of the Father. There's a connection between our joy and prayer. And the truth is, our souls need prayer. It refreshes us. It brings us strength. It gives us confidence knowing that we have access to the throne of God. And how incredible is it that when we ask anything in accordance with the mission of Christ, God will grant it. Even if it, So if you want to grow in joy, grow in prayer. And so the foundation of our joy is Jesus, knowing him, praying in his name. And so now let's pick back up in verse 25 to then discover the foundation of our peace. John 16, 25 says this, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you'll ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I'll ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. 
Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So the confusing interaction between Jesus and the disciples continues. And he again says that they will ask the Father in his name. But there's an amazing truth here. They can ask the Father because the Father loves them. Verse 27 says, for the Father himself loves you. But why does the Father love them? Because they have loved Jesus. And here's an important truth. You have no right to come to God apart from belief in Jesus. You have no right to come to God the Father apart from belief in Jesus. The I am statements that we've seen in John have made this abundantly clear that Jesus is the door. He's the gate. He's the good shepherd. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And apart from belief in Jesus, you're still an enemy of God, an object of his wrath. But if you've believed in Jesus, it not only says that, that your sins are forgiven, but it actually says that God, the Father, actively loves you. His love is extended to you because you have loved the Son. The conversation then continues, and the disciples, they have this moment when, when they think they've kind of figured Jesus out. They think they understand what he's saying. They get kind of excited, thinking that, that they've achieved something, that they've understood But Jesus quickly sobers them. He checks their pride by declaring in verse 32, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. So we again have this reference to the hour. Jesus has been referencing this hour since chapter 2. And it always refers to the culmination of his mission that would always lead to the cross. And he says, it is now here. And this check by Jesus seems a little strange. He's already comforted them in their sorrow, so why would he check them in this way? And it's really because of what's coming. Their pride in themselves, or even their pride in in their knowledge of Jesus, won't help them in in a few hours when their master is taken from them and pinned to a cross. It's not the proud who survive hard times, but the humble And he's keeping them dependent on himself again by pointing them to his words in the foundation of their peace. Verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He says that you may have peace. This peace Jesus is referring to isn't the absence of conflict. This isn't the peace between nations or parties. This is peace referring to that inner disposition of being at rest, of being at calm. There's a contentment and harmony within it. You could imagine a a river or a lake early in the morning when the water is completely still. It looks like glass. There's no disturbance, and we say the water's at peace. This is the peace we're talking about, and that's a peace that the world cannot offer. It cannot manufacture this. Jesus never sugarcoats anything. He, he says that in the world, you will have tribulation. And you don't have to read very far into the book of Acts to see the truth of that. It's not long after the early church is formed that they find themselves in the crosshairs of the Jewish leaders, just like Jesus told them they would. 
And then not long after that, they find themselves in the crosshairs of the Roman Empire. They're torn from their homes. They're rejected by society. The apostles, they experience imprisonment and and beatings and even death. The, The world could attack them, but the world couldn't take their peace because their peace is found in Jesus. He tells them, take heart, I have overcome the world. And I can't think of a truth that we need to remember right now more than that phrase. Take heart, I have overcome the world. There's a lot going wrong in our world today, especially in our country. Uh, traditional values are out the window. The values our, nations were, our nation was founded on are, seem to be eroding. Even the nuclear family, the most sacred and foundational building block of everything, is, is trying to be redefined or done away with altogether. And it can seem really scary. It can seem dark, and, and it is. But our response as Christians must be different from the world because Jesus says, Take heart, I have overcome the world. Our Lord is risen. He has defeated death, hell, and the grave. The power of sin is broken. The evil one has been judged. And now we're awaiting the day when his victory will be realized and God makes all things new and even death itself will die. And it's all based on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He has overcome the world. And so the question for you this morning is, are you living with that joy and peace that Jesus makes available to his followers? Is your life marked by true joy and true peace and noticeably marked by it where people around you can feel it? They see the evidence of it. And if you aren't, then maybe you're trying to find your joy in the wrong places or you're letting the things of this world invade your heart rather than keeping it focused on God. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith. Grow in your knowledge of him and and hold fast to his words to find joy and peace. But maybe you're in here this morning and you have no peace and joy because you don't know Jesus. Jesus told the disciples that their joy is because they would see him, they would know him. Maybe if you're in here this morning and, and you know you've never trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins... And there's no surprise that there is no joy. There is no true peace without the forgiveness of sins. As verse 27 tells us, the Father loves you because you love the Son. There's no peace with God. There is no forgiveness of sins apart from belief in Jesus Christ. And I pray that today would be that day when you would trust in him for the very first time and find that peace and joy that every heart truly longs for. Would you pray with me?